I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astell. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, that's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode six, we read Slouching Toward Gomorrah by Robert Bork from 1996. Robert Heron Bork was born on March 1st, 1927 in Pittsburgh to Harry Bork, a purchasing agent with a steel company, and the former Elizabeth Kunkel, an English teacher. He attended the Hotchkiss School in Connecticut before joining the Marines during World War II. Upon his return, he attended the University of Chicago and later the University of Chicago Law School. He worked in private practice and as a professor of law at Yale. In 1972, he helped out on Richard Nixon's re-election campaign and was rewarded with the nomination to Solicitor General, a post he held for three and a half years. There, he played a role in Watergate. In 1973, when Nixon wanted to keep a special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, from gaining access to incriminating White House recordings and ordered him fired, the Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, and his deputy refused, and they resigned. Mr. Bork, as Solicitor General, was next in line to carry out the President's orders, and he did. He fired Mr. Cox and his entire staff. After the Nixon administration, Bork returned to Yale until the election of President Ronald Reagan at which time he was nominated to the District of Columbia Circuit Court. On July 1st, 1987, President Reagan nominated him to the Supreme Court. Within an hour of the announcement, Senator Ted Kennedy infamously went to the Senate floor to savage him, describing Bork's views as a dystopian America. An array of groups focused on civil and women's rights, labor, and the environment began an extraordinary public campaign against the Bork nomination arguing that his long and extensive record exposed a range of agendas and made him unfit for the job. The attacks resonated, and the Senate voted to reject his nomination. It turned Judge Bork's defeat into a watershed event in the judicial wars, and his name turned into a verb. Getting borked is what happens to a nominee rejected for what supporters consider political motives. After his defeat, Judge Bork retired from the circuit court and took up positions at conservative groups and law schools. Writing and speaking against what he saw as the moral decline of the country at the hands of liberal ideology. In 1996, he published Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Modern Liberalism and American Decline, a bestseller. The book takes aim at egalitarianism, individualism, and other liberal ideas, uh, which we'll discuss today. I believe uh, you and I both read this book back in the 90s, shortly after it came out. It's interesting to look back at it 20 years later, see what holds up, see what doesn't. I think a lot of it was definitely about its time. It's the sort of book Bork wrote once he realized he would never get that Supreme Court nomination so he could really tell it like it is. While I was reading the book, I was thinking, I want to make sure that this he wrote this after his nomination because <laughs> yeah. 
uh, I can't imagine any nominee making it through confirmation after something like this. No, I guess at that point he was in the 70s and his chance had come and gone. But he, uh, it's a pretty wide-ranging, scathing critique of decline in America, which is a theme that a lot of these books focus on that we've read so far. Liberalism specifically, how it, the outgrowth of ideas made popular in the 1960s had, by that time, 30 years later, metastasized into something that Bork saw as really killing American culture. So he starts out by framing the threat that you've just described that he sees. He says in the intro, this is a book about American decline and the mounting resistance to it, what we will call the culture war, and the enemy is modern liberalism. The defining characteristics of modern liberalism are what he calls, number one, radical egalitarianism, and number two, radical individualism. These are the two enemies of American culture that he identifies and and develops throughout the book. So what does it mean? Well, radical egalitarianism is concept of uh, equality of outcomes, and he calls it a, a coercion towards a state of equality. It's sort of a, a leveling of society and, destru- and destruction of, uh, of hierarchy in society. And then radical individualism is uh, reduced limits on personal gratification, sort of the unhindered pursuit of pleasure, completely unrestrained self-gratification. And he says that these two trends in modern liberalism were taking America, American culture in an extremely detrimental direction. He ends the intro, this is really interesting, I thought, by defining what he considered the political challenge of his day, which is probably even more so today. He says, uh, a continuing realignment of our political parties along cultural lines. And he says, in the future, our political contests will also be cultural struggles, which obviously is completely prescient, predicted the uh, Make America Great and Trump administration and the, the culture wars that we've had uh, probably in the last, since, let's say, the last 15 years. Yeah, th- there was there was quite a few things where you... Um and we'll get to some of them later where they seem quite prescient and surprisingly so because you, you, you think of everything as happening now but the roots of a lot of the dysfunction in our system Bork was recognizing in his day it was interesting i i always felt in that day that the republicans were the less culture warrior party the gingrich republicans were more about balance the budget cut the taxes make government mm-hmm. efficient make you know make it smaller and it was the left that was really fighting some of these battles from the 60s that Bork goes into, you know, we're still being fought and now being led by former hippies and radicals from the 60s, people like Bill and Hillary Clinton. And then you you come forward a generation to today and the Clintons are, of course, still around. But now it's I think it's pretty clear the cultural impetus in the culture wars is coming more from the right than from the left, although there's there's still plenty of it on the left. Uh, it's interesting how much of that has changed, whereas I think there are, our side used to be more of the reasonable, be simple, no red flag waving in front of a bull sort of politics. But yeah, I, Bork's, Bork's uh, definition of liberalism interested me too, and I think he admits that it sounds at first contradictory, that radical individualism and radical egalitarianism should be together. Mm-hmm. In one philosophy, and it, I guess it is in a way contradictory, but the way he puts it, that sort of the sort of individualism that individualism that shatters a society, everybody going off in his own direction, could coexist with a coercive egalitarianism from above. I think they, he says they both more or less combine to move society away from constraints on personal liberty, liberty imposed by religion. He says morality, law, family, and community. It's almost a synergy in moving in direction away from institutions, away from traditional institutions. It is interesting. I think you're right that after reading Locke and Goldwater, who you know focus their attention on 
ex- extending and expanding freedom, preserving freedom. Uh, Bork comes at it from another angle and says, uh, can only extend so far because there is a downside. The downside of expanding freedom is basically it leads to this radical individualism. He says, the only thing liberalism knows to offer is more freedom. Liberalism can only endorse more liberty and demand more rights. So ostensibly, we'd step back and say, well, that's 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 a good thing. And Goldwater would say, oh, that's exactly what should happen. And probably Locke would say the same. But Bork's pointing to the logical conclusion of continuously expanding freedom, and that is this radical individualism that moves into, I think, what uh, Weaver in our reading of uh, Ideas Have Consequences you know, you're, you're, you're moving to radical individualism, this atomization and sort of what Weaver would probably call a radical, banal uh, consumerism. It's sort of the same sort of atomizing trends that we talked about last week with George Will's book. I, mean, I actually found a lot of parallels between the two. They both lamented the destruction of intermediary institutions that used to help people conform their behavior or elevate their behavior in a way that government really couldn't or shouldn't and the way individuals often are incapable of doing for themselves. I think Bork focuses more on religion, but they both, he he and Will, seem to uh, hammering at the same trend of individualism, runaway individualism, just gone too far. And he also, in in the introduction, as he's talking about equality and liberty, mentions fraternity, which, you know, if as we'll probably talk about some more next week too, that those were the three principles of the French Revolution, liberty, Mm -hmm. fraternity, equality. Fraternity, I think he called it was sort of about people's desire for social cohesion and that is the of the three it's the one that's completely ignored in modern liberalism he tells a story of what he views as the sort of the genesis of all these political beliefs and he spends a lot of time developing because he, he he really believes that it, much of this originated in the 1960s and let's remember robert bork was more of a member of the silent generation and so the baby boomers were basically his kids and uh, Kyle, you and I, I think have uh, deep resentments for the baby boomers. <laughs> yeah, he, he does too, but from the front end. I'm, um, so he says, uh, he says basically what the radicals did in the sixties illuminates sort of the mood and goals today of the liberal elite because they, they grew up and basically took control. And he says, uh, you know, opposition to the counterculture of the 1960s is what the current culture war is about. I found in his chapter one really interesting. He describes what he thinks drives these proponents of calls radical egalitarianism, radical individualism, sort of the 60s generation. What was their driving force within them? Mm-hmm. And I, I found this so I, I found this so right. He says the search for politics of meaning is a feature of modern liberalism and reflects the human yearning for the transcendental by persons for whom religion no longer feels that need. So again, going back to Weaver, Weaver says human beings, we need something to, we need a, a higher values. We need a higher meaning. We need a metaphysical meaning, if not a, a divine and something to frame our life, what things mean and what things are for and what we're striving to achieve. These sixties radicals, which today I think we'd call basically social justice warriors. Yeah. They have a desire to be part of a movement that changes the world and uh, their, their radical politics become a substitute for religion. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but becomes a substitute for religion. And that's the way to seek meaning in life. I found this to be absolutely correct and prevalent among uh, a number of my friends and uh, on the left and, you know, law school classmates who've kind of followed each other all these years. Once you step away from 
a belief in God or some higher metaphysical values that, you know, as we were talked about, humans, we need to replace it with something. So some people don't need to, but most people do. Well, I think these social justice warriors, that's what they're replacing it with. And, and uh, so I don't think it's a nefarious thing. I think it's more of a, what's going to give my life meaning? Well, trying to improve the situation, standards of living for maybe certain disadvantaged, historically disadvantaged groups or something. Yeah, I think people people have that void. I mean, this is another, this goes back, I think, again, to how conservatives involve tradition in our political theory, where liberals don't, is when we're looking for something, we go to the traditional ideas, religion, patriotism, the law, even. Traditional institutions like family and yeah. local government. Things that, that, that- Community groups. Things that men and women have rallied behind since there's been society where on the left, I think they're, it's, it's sort of like the individualization of religion. You know, each one is making his own God for lack of a better term, whether it be environmentalism or intersectionalism or, you know, what have you, and always coming up with a new system of the world, ignoring the one that, or the various ones that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he also, uh, I mean, he, he has some harsh words for the sixties generation. And I think a lot of them are, he talks about how for all the anti-war protests, the sixties weren't about, the, the radicalism was not about Vietnam. It was about affluence and boredom. I think coming from his generation, that makes a lot of sense because him being born in the 20s, he was among the last Americans where the whole generation probably endured, except for the really rich, some sort of privations. He looks at the depression, mm, right? the war, tough times. And then to see uh, next generation coming up and complaining, oh, everything here is rotten, everything's awful, everything's... T-. You guys have it better than anybody's ever had it in, in the history of the world. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what are you talking about? You know, we came through, a third of the country was out of work. Then we fought a world war, millions died. You guys yeah. have what? I mean, as bad as Vietnam was, I think he would look at the experience of World War II in Korea and say, it, it's been much worse. Yeah. He really develops the, those ideas of boredom and uh, and then envy he says is kind of the the real motivation for leftist politics is envy. I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't find that super persuasive. Uh, he seems to think that that it's all material, and I think maybe much of it is, is in terms of their motivation to try to level. And, but I think that he actually had better ideas, um, maybe hit closer to the mark when he says that radical individual, radical egalitarian, what, what we'll call social justice warriors of, of his time. I, th- I think that there is a a stretch, a reaching, a grasping for meaning. And they see that, they know they take as an article of faith that the U.S. is, he says, deeply immoral, racist, sexist, imperialist, and that the bourgeois class benefited from all this oppression uh, must be destroyed. So the bourgeois class meaning like the white elite, the wasps, the capitalists. And I, and I feel like I'm not as convinced that it's envy and, and, and boredom as I, as I think that it's I just want to be a little bit more generous about their motivations that motivated for improving the world and righting the world's wrongs. Yeah. He, he lays all that out and then he, and then he comes back to the idea that it's just hedonism. And I think you're right. There's, there's motivating factors there, but I mean, and it, it really does mirror religion or imitate religion. You know, that the conviction that America is evil is a lot like what in Christianity we talk about with the fall of man. Yes. You know, there's, there's a, there's an evil at the heart of us and we all have to strive against it. We have this original sin or privilege or what have you. And it, you know, the same as with the environmental movement, there's this, you know, everything we do is making it worse. Everything we do is weak. Maybe there's something in man that not only 
wants a, a god, but also wants to to feel like he's responsible for the evil in the world, wants to punish himself. Because because right. you, you get that with, I mean, all these alternate theories that replace religion, most of them aren't happy-go-lucky. <laughs> they're just as they're just as gloomy in their way. And oh yeah, still yeah, a dystopian uh, nightmare that we're trying to emerge from. Yeah, I, I I agree with you though. I think he I think he lets his emotion cloud his judgment a little bit on this, and really making the the sixties generation out to be a cynical hedonist, and they have ideas. <laughs> and so he says those ideas uh, lead in the direction of trying to create a utopia. That's the real long-term aim of egalitarianism. He says, uh, remaking of human nature. I think the, the human nature element, that's, that's a piece that I, I think will be a theme through almost all of our readings, because I think that really separates conservatives from, from the left and that just the fundamental view of, of human nature. Almost all of our conservative authors believe that there is a, a human nature and that it tend in negative directions. Uh, and all of those tendencies need to be controlled and need limits where especially the radical left would say there, there is no actual human nature. Instead, it's completely socially constructed. It's something that we create on our own. It's something that is shoved down our throats from family, from church, from these traditional institutions, you know, this opposition to capitalism and trying to find authenticity, fetishizing, at least I would say fetishizing past utopias that were destroyed by, you know, white civilization. Mm-hmm. And we see this absolutely today. I think that the the utopian dream is alive and well. And after the election 2018, you have new members coming in who, who, who have a vision for this utopia that, involve, you know, Medicare for all, right. abolish ICE, which basically means open borders. Like anybody can come and go as they please, you know, free college, universal basic income, uh, minimum $15 a minimum wage, you know, restrictions on any free speech that makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, this whole new world that's paid for by who, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, the details are fuzzy. That's a good point about human nature and what to do about it. And that in the course of this podcast and trying to discover what it means to be conservative, that's got to be up there. Is conservatives either accept human nature as flawed and search for restraint, as you said, or, and I guess if we get into some of the real libertarian stuff later on, like Rand would say, human nature is great and we shouldn't do anything about it. We should embrace it. But either way, neither of them is trying to make the new Soviet man in the way that the hard left was and and is. Mm -hmm. So I think we should revisit that in future episodes as what, you know, if if we're looking at what it means to be a conservative, I think acceptance of human nature as that it exists and that there's not much we can change about it other than to rein it in as best as we can. So this is a baseline assumption for George Will from our mm-hmm. from our last episode that he sees pathologies as that that will be the trend of human nature will move in that direction if if there's not some inter- intervening force. It's interesting. I think both Will and the radical egalitarians would would say we need government needs to step in and, and act as that uh, interference and um, move the the human development in a different direction. It's just that. George Will says there is a human nature and it can at times tend toward the bad. And what we need to do is reorient it towards the good. And government can play a, a, a role in softly nudging people in those directions and creating uh, bumpers to ensure that folks stay in, in the, the realm of the good. Where the egalitarians would say there is no human nature. We can recreate it from square one. So then it leads into this 
space of social engineering and creating new utopias. That kind of explains why socialists think they can replace capitalism too. Because I don't, I, I don't think anyone made capitalism. I think it just is. You know, it's just sort of, it's sort of <laughs> what we do: trading, increasing value, working. It's, it, it's not like somebody made it up the way Marx made up socialism. I mean, there were predecessors to Marx, but you know, it's. There's a book you can go to. Yeah. There's no book of capitalism. They have Adam Smith. Yeah, he, right. I mean, you have refined thinking of uh, maybe Adam mm-hmm. Smith, but but he didn't invent the idea of bartering no, it's all, or trading. And it's all human nature because you see it popping up everywhere around the world, even under oppressive systems like communism or fascism or whatever they have in Iran, theocracy, I guess. You know, they people are still doing capitalism because it's it's just what we do. If you have something and you have too much of it, you're going to trade it to somebody who has something that you want. And that, you know, that builds on itself and becomes a whole system. As much as the Soviets tried to stamp out black markets for 70 years, there was still a lively trade in American blue jeans and you know, bootleg recordings of the Beatles and every mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people want stuff. They trade for it. They work for it. It's a system, but it's not a system anyone made. So maybe... If they're looking at the world as there's no human nature, maybe they're saying, well, somebody made this, right? Rich guys, I don't know. We can replace it with our thing. Yeah, it's a tool of oppression yeah. that was created to to uh, advance the, the wealthy and the powerful. Yeah, but I mean, maybe it, you would think by now they've seen that it keeps popping up like the like the grass in the cracks of your driveway. You can pave over it. It's going to come through. And of course, no appreciation for, you know, like what Steven Pinker would show as the, the upsides of capitalism enlightenment thinking is it been the greatest tool for pulling people out of poverty yeah. in the history of human thinking yeah i can understand why they wouldn't believe that in 1917 but it's hard to say that to not believe that in 2018 having seen the last century it's but you know but i guess some some people are slow learners I guess. he makes a strong case for censorship and wondering wondering what your thoughts were on on uh, on that chapter yeah that one that's what i remembered when we talked about reading this book, that's what I remembered from 20 years ago reading it was that he pro-censorship. And I thought that's unusual in, in any sort of American really too. Because at least, you know, today when people want censorship, they don't call it censorship. They call it something else. Hate speech, you know, so get, getting rid of that. It is censorship, but they usually don't on it. Bork is at least honest in saying there's some stuff shouldn't be published. One of the reasoning he gives for it was at least a little convincing, although I wouldn't say it convinced me. He said that because people rule the republic, our system needs some sort of censorship because it's in the national interest that the citizens not be debased. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, I mean, I it's certainly in our national interest that the citizens not be debased. I don't think censorship works, even if it's desirable. He goes through a lot in the chapters before that and after about all the bad the courts have done and the lack of standards in colleges, the lack of standards on the court, the broadening of free speech in directions he finds absurd, you know, pornography and strip clubs mm-hmm. and the like as that's free speech. You can't stop it. But then, then he wants the government to censor. He says, well, why, why do you think they're going to censor your way? And this, this is usually the argument conservatives give yeah. to the left, you know? Um, oh, sure. You want it. You want the government to have this power. Why do you think you're going to run the government the whole time? Because we're going to have it sometimes. Yeah. You want us to have that power? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What did, what did you think about his arguments? I think this is where the con- conservative active governments, this, this is kind of the strain of conservatism where, you know, we'll absolutely rail against the left for activist leviathan government. This is oftentimes where conservatives actually want the government to step in to impose. And I think this is, I think he's channeling George Will again. I mean, 
he says it's crucial that the character of the citizenry not be debased, like what you said. And, and, uh, that's basically Will's argument that it will be debased and, you know, our, our culture will tend in that direction if, if we don't create some parameters. Bork sees this decline of culture, uh, where he says popular entertainment celebrates un- unconstrained self, self-absorption, deep hostility to traditional culture, and his railing against Hollywood and por- pornography. I mean, yes, this is, I'm the same as you. This is what I remember from reading the book because when I was younger, certainly my parents, my my family and people in our community, pretty religious community that I grew up in, this was without question the number one issue is the the decline of morals and standards. Folks would say that the new morality is just the old immorality. So Bork calling for censorship. And basically, basically what he's saying is we don't want we don't want to let people have access to porn or highly sexualized content or murder and crime and kill the police. And of course this was also the heyday in in the nineties of gangster rap and uh and lyrics that pretty vulgar and court goes the supreme court went in a direction of basically more or less not regulating what they called obscenity um which was curious because there are other maybe negative censor worthy maybe uh elements for hollywood than just obscenity i mean they they don't touch vulgarity or or profanity or anything and so that was interesting and i think here you have bork really upset over that and again my the folks that i grew up with kind of where i was raised this was without question the top like animating problem of our day. Interesting to read though, because I think every, every generation brings its own prejudices about what's, what's real art and what isn't. And I mean, reading him talk about music was interesting because I don't know if we discussed it during the Weaver episode. Weaver has a big section on, on music also. He hated jazz. Remember he thought it was modern and debased. It wasn't like proper music. Now Bork says jazz was great. But it's this rap yeah. nowadays. That's the real garbage. Now, that, that yeah, just made yeah. me kind of laugh. It's like, well, these are, I mean, <laughs> how much of this is political philosophy and how much of it is just old man's complaints about uh, the kids nowadays music, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree that there are some crazy lyrics, but again, I don't, I don't, I don't really trust the government to pick and choose which ones are good. I mean, it made me think of the Citizens United case in which the government tried to censor the publication of a movie for political reasons. Mm-hmm. To any sort of somebody brought up and familiar with First Amendment, that's uh, core political speech. It was a movie about why we shouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2008, I think. Mm-hmm. And the, the FEC said you couldn't publish it before an election. Now that's censorship. And I don't think Bork likes it. Yeah. Um, he was he was still alive then. I don't know what if he had anything to say about it. Probably did. But it's after the publication of this. Again, I, I think that's that's what would end up getting censored if the government could censor. Political speech by your enemies. I think the government is all too often happy for regular folks to have their opinions debased because then they're not getting mad about other stuff. Mm. They'll censor that politics, though. And, you know, we've seen in campaign finance regulation a lot of things that verge on censorship or, or cross over the line into censorship as they did in the Citizens United case. I feel like Bork's efforts would really backfire on him and, and other people like him who want discussion of politics and, you know, higher ideas, but don't want strip clubs everywhere. Yeah. I think a question for us too is, you know, in this investigation of what is conservatism, what is conservative, I'm with you in terms of my own probably feeling about much of this, but, but I also pretty confident that for maybe a large contingent of conservatives, 
this is the reason they're conservatives because they actually do want you know activist government in the realm of censorship of any uh, depraved media and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Conservative attacks on Hollywood have, have kind of evolved. Now it's more well, that's just the the home of well, I guess it was always uh, the home of the left. But when I was younger, you know, conservatives were much more in the camp of you know what what makes Hollywood evil is not their campaign contributions, but the fact that they constantly pushing for this new morality and seem to have no restraints whatsoever. That's the reason we vote for, you know, George W. Bush mm-hmm. or whatever. That's the reason we voted for Reagan and for George H.W. Bush and, and Dole. It's even since Bork's time, the let's call it the religious right, but churchgoers, certainly during the Bush administration, were riding very high on these exact arguments. Obviously, there's still a big contingent in, in the Republican Party and among conservatives who, this is the, this is the animating issue of, of our time. And I don't know. What do you think? Is is that is that necessary for conservatism, or how how important uh, are those uh, set of well, beliefs? I, I think that, I think you're right that they're keeping society on a more virtuous path is is going to be important to a lot of people, and it should be. I I think maybe the way to square the circle is to talk about the decline of the intermediary institutions that used to not censor with the force of government, but you wouldn't you wouldn't find these things. Like I I mean, the town I used to live in. You get up to this, the checkout at the supermarket, and they'd have a Cosmopolitan magazine that was covered in brown paper. Right. Yes, I totally. Remember that. This was a few years ago, too. Not, I mean, maybe an hour and a half outside of Philadelphia. You know, so you don't you don't have to get too far. And then you go into the city, and there's you know pornography everywhere. I mean, I guess communities still can exercise a little control, but I wonder what Bork would have thought of the rise of the internet, too. Which I mean, he talks about some in his book. He's talking about now. Um, yeah. Some of the early internets where people, it was just text, you know, I mean, he's talking about some of the filthy things people would write on there. I mean, if he could see it today, I don't oh, know yes. if there's a way you can censor that. I mean, there's things that's illegal to get on the internet. People get them. There's dark webs and, and whatnot. I mean, even things like sports gambling, which you'd think it'd be easy to stop because you have to have access to bank accounts and what. If you want to bet a game on the internet, you can do it. So yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if there's a way even practically to achieve what he wants. So whereas there, you know, when he was growing up and even when he was writing, certainly would have been more possible to say, you can't, can't publish that in this town and you could just, you know, not let it in. And that's it. People would smuggle stuff always, but, uh, it seemed like unless you were willing to meet shadowy figures in a dark alley to, to buy your, your filth, you know, a, a, a place could keep it out. Now I, I don't know if it's even possible. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a whole different ball game when you're just, the, the the contrast between meeting a guy in a dark alley to pick up a, a videotape, yeah. VCR tape, versus now. I mean, uh, it's an entirely different landscape where you can download or you know just open a web page. You, you're probably hitting right on it. That's this is probably why the whole censorship conversation has faded because it's long past that. I mean, that we crossed that bridge eons ago, and with the in the new frontier of the internet. It's completely impossible to stop. So maybe that's the, the the alternative is more like what Will was talking about is just building up a, a plausible alternative, encouraging people toward virtue. And that's that's a tougher sell sometimes than just banning vice. But banning vice isn't going to work, mm-hmm. not when it's something that can be downloaded. Yeah, and not when we have these liberal value, the classical liberal values of individualism and and I take his point that uh, that excessive freedom can lead in a in a uh, undesirable 
destination, but still, how, how do you rein? How do you rein that back? And do we really want to? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it it has negative consequences, externalities, but is there really many people in this society who would say, yeah, it's bad enough that I want you to start restricting my freedom or rolling it back? Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would stand in line. For I don't that. either. I don't think most conservatives would either. I think we are, if anything, more wedded to liberty and the freedoms protected in our Bill of Rights than we were even a generation ago. Uh, I think we've we've seen what big government can do, and we don't want it done to us. So I, I, I think you see more defense of those classical liberal values on the right than the left these days. I'm not, I'm not sure that modern conservatives would make much of Bork's censorship arguments. The force behind them is definitely, as you note, something to to consider. You know, what are we going to do then with a society that's more than ever obsessed with readily available trash? Because uh, on the left, they say, "Well, we don't need to do anything about it. This is good. It's all good." You know, that's ra- that's I think the radical individualism that he that he means to to. That's attack. the only part of the human nature yeah. they <laughs> that they're okay with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Part. yeah. But for those, for those of, I'll say those of us want to see some self-control and some limits, how do we get there? You know, yeah, again, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but you know, George Will would say, well, let's have the government create those, those bumpers, those, those parameters. And, and I think you and I are maybe like uh, a little skeptical of that, Um, but what other, what other answers are there? Well, actually, I think this feeds into his chapter 14, which I really wanted to talk about. And that is his discussion of religion and the role of religion in creating standards for, for culture and for society. He says, religion is the basis of morality, and it's essential to the health of American culture. Again, just like many of the people, adults that I grew up with, says the trouble in our society really coincides with the decline in the influence of religion. He contrasts that with maybe the position of those on the left. We've talked a little bit about this already, but you know, many people need a belief in the transcendent to give meaning to their lives. Weaver talked about this. And if religion is denied a place, then then other forms of transcendence will move in. The the secular, well, here's a quote from Irving Kristol that I thought was pretty good that he, that he had in the book. Secular rationalism has been unable to produce a compelling, self-justifying moral code. Major philosophical as well as cultural trends began to repudiate secular rationalism in favor of intellectual and moral relativism and or nihilism. So again, this goes back to our episode three discussion. If religion has served throughout human history as sort of the the basis of morality, that's the baseline and fear of the afterlife, fear of God's damnation served as that controlling factor in in, uh, human behavior. If you remove religion, then what do we replace it with? And even Weaver was saying, well, we need some higher values. We need some metaphysical superstructure to to our 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 existence, so that we have meaning in our lives. What Irving Crystal is saying is basically like, okay, well, that, but also the metaphysical has been ripped, uh, torn root from branch. Also, so what we have left is this secular rationalism, which has also been torn down, and ultimately, so now we're in a place of you know, moral relativism or nihilism. What Bork says is there is no alternative to religious faith. He gives a great example of what if you, we all know people who who are not religious, but live good moral lives and raise good kids and, and have self-control and put limits on their on their children's activities and try to teach them well. And that absolutely exists. I have first am knowledgeable, you know, but most people, many people at least, they're not able to sort of do that without this outside governor, we'll call it, you know, religion. 
and, and there's nothing to replace religion with, he says. I wonder if you think that's right and, and where we are, especially as conservatives. I've been thinking about it because I think he does what Weaver tried to avoid doing. You know, we, Weaver got towards this and he was somewhat religious himself, but I think he didn't want to say, you know what, it's got to be God or nothing. That, that's what Bork does here for sure. He makes some good points about it. I, I also feel the way you do that. I, I, and what he said, you know, I, I know people who are atheist or agnostic or just vaguely theist who are decent folks who lead good lives, morally upstanding positive members of their community. You know, a lot of friends of mine, a lot of family members of mine are like that. So it's hard to look at them and say, well, you know, you must be uh, morally debased because you don't have Jesus in your life because they don't. And they're, and they're decent folks. But I think, I think, I think you hit upon this. That's uh, what, what can work for some won't work for others. And that, that belief in a higher power, really, if your behavior is inclined to need reform, I think you do need something. And the way Bork talked about it, saying that religion is by its nature authoritative and final as to its fine as to its first mm-hmm. principles that's true. any philosophy you make up yourself is mutable you know or yes. anyone made up by another person is is mutable you can say well who, that's a person made that up i'm also a person i can disagree whereas at least with religion you're made to conform because you you're what you're you're submitting to someone on a higher level than you saying, yeah, his rules, they're going to be my rules. I'll try my best to follow them. I don't know. I'd like the answer to be, you can have it both ways, but I don't think that's true for everybody. And I think just as how 12 step programs, the first step I believe is uh, submission to a higher power and they don't call mm-hmm. it God or Allah or Jesus or any particular higher power. But part of it is, is people saying, you know, my behavior is out of control and I need to fix it. And I'm not capable of doing that myself. I think for a lot of folks, mm. in less serious ways than substance abuse, they have this problem. Maybe not everybody needs religion, but I think a lot of people do. So, and maybe that's what what mm. kind of separates American our American system from its antecedents in Europe is that they've fallen away from the church altogether, pretty much. Whereas we still have, yeah, and of course they've also moved in a pretty liberal direction. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's a coincidence. But even here in America, if an individual doesn't go to church, he gets sort of the herd immunity of church, of, you know, communities that are still in many places made up of a majority of people who attend some sort of religious institution and are bound by its rules. So you still get that that sort of community ethos that's informed by a religious tradition, even if you're not a part of it, even if you go and don't particularly believe it, you're at least, you know, a fish in that sea. But you need people who who do deeply believe mm-hmm. in it because it's almost like you need the rationale. I I know many people, and you probably do too, who are trying to replace religion, and, and to do so, they try to create their own communities, maybe sort of a godless church, universal Unitarians mm-hmm. or whatever. But it fall it quickly falls apart because because the the rationale is not strong enough to pull people. I mean the the threat of eternal damnation is pretty damn compelling reason to get uh, up early and uh, get dressed and get your kids bathed and dressed in their nice clothes and so forth. Yeah, I think that yeah, um, the, the man-made beliefs always come down to, well, says you, you know, and that yeah, you can't yeah. say that in a religion. I mean, maybe there's disputes among religions, of course, but once you find one that you actually believe in, uh, there's not much you can do about the rules. Although he, yeah, he does, yeah. of course, this is what the yeah. left hates is, uh, you know, cause it's a, it's a, it's a power play. It's a tool of oppression and especially, you know, in traditional religions, women maybe don't play the, the central role that men have. And 
But so to me, like a, a, this, I think this is a really pressing question for conservatism and the, and the future of conservatism. And, and that is, can conservatism survive the decline of religion? Because I, I think that, that this is an urgent question because each passing year, the, the number of folks who at least to affiliate with organized religion is just dropping precipitously. We have the rise of the nuns and none doesn't mean atheist, mm-hmm. uh, although there's more atheists now than ever, but it does mean uh, a deep distrust in organized religion and moving away from traditional religious institutions towards a, a personal faith and a sp- a spiritual, but not religious. That is a, a very different paradigm. I mean, I, I, religious community and talking about salvation and eternal damnation and community, those are motivating factors to, and and serve as very strong parameters and guideposts for living, where the more ethereal, spiritual, but not religious, not just open interpretation, but personal, individual interpretation, where God has no continuity of me, and the meaning of it has no continuity from person to person. And so then we're in this, back in this realm of radical individualism. So anyway, can conservatism exist without religious faith as a central component? I, I really don't know. And I think it's an urgent I question. I agree. I don't, I don't know the answer, but it's certainly one that's coming upon us sooner rather than later. And, and these things come and go. I mean, declines in re- religiosity in American history and, and there's upsurges again. And, you know, we may be due for another great awakening at some point in our lives. So we may see people go back to church. I don't know. It doesn't seem to be the case in other parts of the developed world. Yeah, and I think the rise of the internet. He he doesn't discuss this. I mean, he he has his reasons for that he sees as the decline of church, and he basically says Catholic and mainline Protestants have melded too much with secular culture, and churches are not demanding making demands of their parishioners. In fact, he points out that the churches that do demand the most from members have gained membership. Mm-hmm. And that's yep. still true. Uh, that's I think that's still true too. Evangelicals, Mormons who who demand much from Muslims who demand much are, are still moving along well, but that's a that's just a, sh- a shrinking piece of uh, of what used to be a, a pretty religious society in America. Yeah, it, it made me think of uh, I think it was the 2000 election when George W. Bush was debating Al Gore, and they uh, the moderator asked each person what his favorite philosopher was. Okay, uh, <laughs> that could, that's a tough question for a five minute answer, but I I remember Bush's answer was that it was Jesus because he changed my heart at the time. That's kind of a cop out. I mean, he was asking about philosophy, not theology, you know, but um, I do think religion has a way of changing hearts and, and behavior in a way that philosophy doesn't because you pick a philosophy. Whereas if you have, I think people of faith, it's more of a compulsion. You can't just say, you know, I don't believe in God today. If you believe in him, you do. And you could lose faith and you could regain it. And, but it seems like it's a thing that happens outside of our conscious will. It's how you feel about it. It's how, whether certain religion speaks to you in the same way that you can't just convert people by a formula because some people are going to feel it and some people aren't. And some people are going to really reject it. So I think that, that what Bush was getting at is kind of what Bork is saying here is that that higher grounding outside the self is essential. I guess, I guess what we'll have to explore yeah. in, in, in future episodes is whether there's anything that can substitute or the, uh, the theistic God that most conservatives would identify with. So Bork closes, you know, he, he builds this case that, uh, that the culture has gone to 
gone to hell and we, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, I think you and I were reading. All right. So what's the answer? What's the hope? Basically not much hope. <laughs> he says, uh, you know, it's basically inevitable that we're going to continue in a direction of uh, degeneracy and, uh, the best we can do is maybe create these small islands of decency, you know, kind of, uh, enclaves of, of small, small communities, small groups. And he says, I just found this, you know, throwing up his hands. He says that the task of conservatism is to hold on as long as possible to institutions and faith. You know, basically like the rapture's coming, you know, the apocalypse is coming. Uh, all we can do is, uh, you know, hold on tight for the ride. And look, I think this is a prevailing attitude among religious people, at least in my experience. You know, there's basically nothing we can do. We're going to hell in a handbasket. And the best we can do is, you know, kind of keep our family safe and our community and build a wall around us and of course you know the book is called slouching towards gomorrah and gomorrah is an allusion to the toward the uh the wicked and depraved city that god destroyed in the old testament yeah he seems to think that that's exactly where we're headed and there's not much we can do about it yeah it's a pretty deep hopelessness in a way i i I, maybe it's just my nature i can't really get on board with that i think there's a lot of good going on in the world and in america especially i don't know i've inclined more towards will's view which was there are things we can do institutions we can rebuild and it's not easy and it's drawing which line where is not it's difficult but i don't know i i don't i don't feel that same sense of hopelessness in america and the west what do you think i agree with you i mean i i guess i don't i don't have the the doom and gloom feelings about the about the world i think i actually think it's a really america's a pretty amazing place and it remains that way and and there are pockets of let's call it evil or, you know, pockets of uh, negativity. Yeah. I mean, the task as a parent is to try to steer our kids away from, you know, what's bad. And I think though, that this era of such transparency and access to information, I think it helps. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, for example, I, you know, I'll show kids, my kids pictures of, uh, from the internet of uh, these uh, adults who've overdosed on fentanyl or heroin, you know, it has a searing impact on a, mm-hmm. on a young mind. So I think there are positives out there too. And, you know, we suffer from the fallacy of familiar in that, uh, you know, let's say how many kidnappings are there in, in America in a given year? Well, really not very many. If it's, if you're outside of mm-hmm. family members, you know, who, who kidnap their own kids, there's almost, there's very, very few, basically none. Uh, year to year, but it feels like such a dangerous place outside because if there is a kidnapping, then it something along those lines, then it, it runs 24 seven and it just feels like it's happening everywhere all the time and we can't yeah. stop. It's like our minds aren't, our minds aren't really made for something as vast as the United States. We're yeah. Not good at those yeah. big numbers. But yeah, I think yeah. I, I agree. I, th- and I think, I don't know. I think to sum up, if you wanted to start moving the summary of today's reading i think yeah it's, um closing thoughts i think bork is if any of your listeners want to read this he he is a good writer i found myself wishing he had been um, been a member of the supreme court because his opinions would have been on par with scalia's best i think because he he's a good wordsmith i i, I do think his i think his worldview by the time he wrote this he was in into his 70s so maybe that that clouds it a bit but it's a little more doom and gloom than either of us really believe is uh, accurate but it's it's a worthwhile read uh, you know if it, it's of its time a lot of the themes are also of this time we didn't get much into his opinions about what goes on on college campuses but it's a lot like what people are talking about today about intellectual intolerance yeah. almost mob rule among students yeah a, a good read and and 
especially on the religion topic. It's a lot to think about. Yeah, so I agree with you pretty much across the board. And I, I think, you know, the value of this book was, I mean, he really he really identifies pathologies in society that, that continue to today that urgently need uh, redress, uh, need solutions. And I think puts his finger on a number of trends in modern liberalism that I think are negative and continue to be negative, And if anything, are more prevalent today than they even were in the 90s. Found it very valuable to read, for example, the the 60s student riot stuff that he that he wrote about because it was just it just sounded exactly like you know the safe spaces and <laughs> microaggression uh, episodes that we that we're dealing with today. I mean, it really hasn't changed. And in a, I guess in a perverse way, it roundabout way, it gave me more hope because oh yeah, you know what? Actually, we have seen this before. We've seen this movie before, and it yeah, it's going to have to burn itself out, and it, it could get hot for for a time, but you know, more likely than not, we'll, you know, get back to maybe a, a more sense of normalcy. And, and so I appreciated that. He is a great writer, very plain spoken, very blunt and straightforward. His his bluntness was really sparked in me. Like, I wonder how the hearings went. And so I went back and started, uh, I, I watched a decent amount of the, of his uh, Supreme Court hearing, confirmation hearings. And, and yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he's pretty blunt and, um, that doesn't necessarily nope. sell for a confirmation <laughs> hearing. Certainly not today. So anyway, glad we read the book. Next episode, we're going to turn to the the godfather of conservatism, Edmund Burke, and his book, Reflections on the Revolution in France, written in 1790. So we'll hope you can join us then. Thanks.